0: Hi, this is Tara from Paradise, and you guys are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 38, the party checks into the Turning Bull Inn in Mirpool after a long day's travel. They relax by the fire and take an evening meal before heading upstairs to bed. Sometime in the middle of the night, novice Bazu is unexpectedly visited by Catsbane. At first it seems that the wizard is nervous, unable to sleep, and wishes Bazu to say a prayer over their mission the next day. But it turns out he is there to give Bazu a warning. The party will betray him. At the end of their conversation, Catsbane says he has a plan to thwart their evil intentions. The scene then replays from a new perspective, and we quickly learn that the person visiting Bazu is not Catsbane at all, but Romola who has magically changed her appearance to look like the wizard. During her visit with Bazu, she learns a few things about the party's mission and plants a seed of doubt in the cleric's mind regarding his companions. That's not all she plants with Bazu. When the cleric is not looking, Romola hides a magical charm in his bag. Furthermore, she casts the spell Suggestion on him, though what she has proposed we do not yet know. In the morning, the party meets in the main room of the inn and sets out for the church. Their plan is to retrieve a holy relic the sword of the paladin, Aylward, and then come back for a quick meal before beginning the journey back to Silmoral. In the church, they meet with an elderly cleric of Sidal, who reads over Novice Bazu's letter from Aranes and then says a prayer over the party. Inside Bazu's bag, Romola's magical charm begins to twitch. Chapter 39 Part 1 Day 116, 9 o'clock a.m., three hours remain on the suggestion spell. Party status, Yellowfly, 30 of 30 hit points. Shawnee, 19 of 19. Jace, 26 of 26. Catsbane, 12 of 12. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile, Read Languages, Mirror Image, and invisibility. Praise Saddam. The candle did not glow brighter as the words were spoken. Instead, it flickered. Catsbane, who was looking at the flame intently, turned a shade paler, though nobody was paying him enough attention to notice. When the elder cleric opened his eyes, he frowned slightly, as though confused. Then he blew out the candle.
1: Praise Saddam.
0: Navas Bazu repeated the words, but his voice lacked conviction, too. There followed a slightly awkward moment before the priest stepped to the side and allowed Bazoo to lead the party down the stairs. A few episodes back, the Night Mother warned her apprentice about the arrival of the companions in Mirpool, and she gave an extra warning about the cleric she knew would be with them. She sent Romola out to deal with the threat, but before she did, she gave her a magical charm. This is the Sawyer's Thumb, and here's what it does. The thumb is a cursed item that causes the prayers of the bearer and anyone in their vicinity to fail. It completely inhibits the casting of first-level clerical spells. Spells of second level have a 50% chance to fail, and spells of third level or higher are unaffected. The radius is 15 feet, and the charm only affects good aligned casters. When the elder cleric of the church cast his spell of Detect Evil just now, the spell did not identify anything. It did not behave normally either, but the caster was not made suspicious by this. He will notice it and be troubled, but his reaction will be to self-reflect and self-doubt, not to suspect. He is also not aware that the spell failed. He only knows that he did not detect any evil, and he did not quite feel the connection to his deity that he had expected. The torches in their sconces flickered and fluttered when Bazu recited the words to keep them safe from the magical glyph that warded the door to the crypt against intruders. The heavy slab door ground open, moving on metal casters inside a groove, cut into the floor, and the companions passed through. He knows your thoughts, intoned Bazu as he led them inside. Try to avoid thinking simple ones. The crypts under the Church of Sidal in Mirpool were five floors below ground. Only the first floor was fully open concept. Below that, the dimensions remained the same, but the area had been divided into rooms and hallways. If one were to look at a map of it, the structure was very much like a buried tower. The crypt was the lowest level. It was protected by several magical barriers and hazards which would activate if those present were not accompanied by a cleric of Sadal. Of course, Bazu was such a cleric, so the companions were not in any danger as they navigated the torch-lit halls. While some crypts kept their dead in sarcophagi or ossuaries, the Church of Sadal instead kept theirs cremated in urns The halls of the Murement, announced Bazio as they proceeded. Touch nothing. The walls and floor of this level were, like the others, cut from dark stone. Unlike the four floors above, this one's hallways were not squared off at the ceiling, but completely arched, with ribbed supports a fitted half-ring between stretches of plain wall. It gave the place a scalloped look that caught the torchlight dramatically. Thin, dust-covered tables lined the walls to either side, atop which were similarly dusty urns of various shapes and sizes. The companions could tell that they were painted, and many had writing or pictures on their surface. But the dust layer was so thick on them as to make everything look furry and grey. Some urns were as heavy-looking and large as water pitchers. Others were delicate things, the size of egg cups. As the corridors were too narrow to arrange themselves otherwise, the companions walked in single file, with Bazu in the lead, then Yellowfly, Jace, Shawnee, and finally Catsbane bringing up the rear. The atmosphere this far under the earth was a little claustrophobic, but it was not entirely unpleasant. Although the air was cold and reminders of death were literally all around them, somehow the place felt very safe and had a feeling of tranquil strength. Bazu turned left and took them under another half-ring arch support, down a long corridor, and into a chamber with three straight walls and one curved. Arranged against the curved wall on a wooden stand was a suit of armor of white enamel and steel. A great helm topped a suit of heavy plate. To the left, hanging from the wall by unseen hooks, was a heater shield with the symbol of Sadal on it. The symbol was an old one, a vibrant yellow sun with a serrated ring of red flames. Somehow, the dust that covered everything else down here had not touched the armor with the shield, nor had it touched the knight's holy weapon. To the right, also hanging from a pair of small hooks on the wall, was a long sword of simple but elegant design. A flame motif was etched into the blade that started at the hilt and continued halfway up the weapon's length. The edges from the midpoint to the tip were of a different metal than the rest of the blade.
1: The silver Thorn,"
0: said Bazoo. By now, the others knew that the name referred to both the hero and his weapon. Where are his remains? asked Shanae, perhaps a little inappropriately.
1: The paladin's cremated remains are in an urn kept behind his breastplate, replied Bazio, pointing at the armored chest. Now, I shall say one more prayer before retrieving the holy relic. Clear your minds of all sinful thoughts, and open your hearts to the word of Sadar.
0: Since this episode is powered by a ticking clock... The duration of Romola's suggestion spell, I need to determine how long it will take for the party to get to the church, retrieve the sword, and then return to the inn. I think it would take anywhere from two to four hours. In other words, the spell will be in effect for the full duration of their mission unless the maximum possible four hours is rolled. A simple D6 will determine this. On a one to two, the party spends two hours retrieving the silver thorn. On a three to four, three hours. On a five to six, it will take four hours. Here's the roll. Oh, okay. Well, I'll reveal the result of that roll soon enough. Also, while the party is several stories underground, I want to take a moment to find out what is happening on the surface. Specifically, I want to know what the weather is like. This might seem apropos of nothing, but I can see at least a couple of ways the weather might matter in the near future. Camertine is situated in the world of Merith, and it experiences all four seasons over the course of a year with each season lasting roughly three months. Right now, it is about one month into winter. There's frequent snowfall, and it's cold outside. But what is the weather like on this particular day? In season one, I used a very simple mechanic to determine the weather whenever I wanted a random result. I'm gonna use that same system now. I just roll a d20, and the higher the number, the better the weather. I'm gonna use my metallic silver d20 for this roll in honor of the Silverthorn. Here goes, I got a five. I think that's heavy snow, not quite a blizzard, but bad enough that the party might consider delaying their return trip to Selmoral by a day. Speaking of the capital, a different kind of storm has been brewing over there for several days.
1: Wander Middle-Earth in the Lore of the Rings podcast, where we wander the world of J.R.R. Tolkien. In the Lore of the Rings podcast, we explore the inspiring tales and rich mythology of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings legendarium and connect it to the movies and the new Rings of Power series. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. You'll find a new, lore-packed episode every Thursday. Come wander and not be lost with the Lore of the Rings podcast.
0: Between the Lines On day 109, a week before the current point in the story, the demon Azor Azul completely took over the dead physical shell of Carrick Malmar, It climbed up Whitestone Cliff and entered the castle, where, using some kind of curse or spell, turned the king into a drooling idiot while the jester, Briar Patches, looked on in terror. It was Sindhwan, the captain of the royal guard, who found the king in this state and ordered that the castle doors be shut. He also ordered the sealing of the Cernan Gate. It can be assumed that he began some kind of investigation after this. Sindhwan is a very disciplined sort of man, He has no personal affection for Colfrey, but he does value the symbolic aspect of the royal line and respects the institution in general. In short, he is a lawful, loyal man who puts his personal beliefs aside and does his job to the best of his abilities. How would he have dealt with this crisis, I wonder? His investigation would have been kept very private. Sindhwan would have looked for, but failed to find, Carrick Malmar, the royal archmachus, who, as far as Sindhwan knows, is still alive, but in absentia. He would have informed a few of his most trusted men, and probably the High Priest of Vesaluna too. Briar Patches, still cowering at the scene when Sindwan arrived, would have been put into custody and relentlessly interrogated. As for the Queen, she would have been told a lie. Her husband had fallen ill and must be kept in isolation. There's one more person that Sindwan would have told, and that is the new captain of the City Watch, Krell. But I wonder how much Sindwan would have told Krell. Well, i guess that depends on how much he trusts the man let's do a reaction roll unmodified to find out 2d6 the higher the roll the more he trusts him the roll a nine that's on the high side Sindwan might withhold one or two small details now, i'm not sure what those might be at this point but more or less krell would have a good idea of what has happened no role is needed to determine how the new captain of the watch would react After a flicker of genuine shock and surprise, he would realize that this turn of events provided him a rare opportunity. Krell has always believed he was born for greatness. Well, here is his chance to manifest that destiny. Dramatis Personae Jace Seven years ago Nudge Pickens hadn't been looking for a new recruit when he met Jace for the first time. At that point in his life, Nudge was working as a fence behind a front business as a reseller. He bought and resold all manner of equipment in his legitimate business, and had even grown reasonably wealthy through honest trade. At the proceeds from his illegal affairs, and Nudge was a rich man. He was not even 30 years old. Some of the items Nudge traded in were textiles, spun wool, salted fish, cider, grain, and ironworks. Recently, he had grown impatient with his supplier of the latter, and had decided to put a smaller ironmonger's shop to the test. His test was a literal one, and it had little to do with the quality of the items. Nudge was, and had always been, more interested in the people he did business with. Perhaps it was hypocritical, but he demanded total honesty and loyalty in his trading partners, even though he himself was a liar and a cheat. Jace, then only 15 years of age, made the delivery of Nudge's first new order of ironworks. It was a small cartload of nails, horseshoes, cookware, and other sundry items. When Nudge met with Jace in his warehouse, where the younger man was to unpack the order and collect payment, Nudge deliberately overpaid him by three coppers. Young Jace caught what he believed to be an honest error. He returned the three pennies, thanked Nudge, and returned to his shop with his cart empty. He thought little of the exchange. Jace did not enjoy working for the family business and daydreamed about becoming a member of the City Watch, so the merchant, with his moon face and dopey eyes, had not impressed him at all. But, although he did not know it, he had passed a test, and Nudge Pickens took notice. Over the months that followed, Nudge would engage Jace in short conversations every time he made a delivery. He missed nothing and soon learned that Jace was, in addition to being honest, loyal to his family, punctual. And dissatisfied with his current occupation when jace confided in him that he dreamed of joining the watch nudge did not try to dissuade him instead he offered to teach him how to use a sword although the merchant did not exactly strike jace as a warrior type he was the only person he had ever met who could teach him anything he actually wanted to learn he readily accepted and soon found himself visiting nudge for a sparring lesson even when he did not have business to conduct a teacher-pupil relationship quickly developed that, over time, deepened into a genuine friendship. Eventually, after a few years, the day came when Nudge invited Jace back to his home after a sparring lesson in the warehouse. You have become a fine swordsman, Jace. You are quick and observant. I'm proud of what you've achieved, and there's something I'd like to give you. Nudge played coy and would not reveal the nature of the gift until they had arrived back at his home, unassuming on the outside. Inside, the house boasted every sort of luxury, more wealth and comfort on display than Jace had ever seen before, by far. There were tapestries on the walls, fine silver plates and utensils on the tables, woven rugs. Nudge, it turned out, even employed a manservant, a somewhat rough-looking valet he introduced as Maruk. Jace, drinking in the opulence, followed his teacher through several rooms until they reached a study. Here, Nudge took a short sword down from the wall, where it was on display, and handed it to him. This is for you, he said. The sword was nothing special. It was not made of precious metal, nor was it decorated with jewels. But it was a good, well-balanced weapon. Jace was overcome with gratitude. He tried to refuse the gift, but Nudge cut him off. This is not the gift I mentioned. This is payment for the many hours of enjoyment you've given me, Jace. No, there's something else I wish to offer you. Something better. The younger man accepted the sword with a grin spreading across his face and asked his mentor what else he might offer that could possibly be better than his very own sword. Jace, you are an honest friend and a good fighter. I wish to offer you a position in my company. I want you to work for me. Chapter 39 Part 2 Day 116 Several Hours Later Romola couldn't help but let slip a sniff of laughter. If the proprietor of this inn had been her accomplice, she couldn't have provided a better room. Even with the shutters mostly closed to make it seem unoccupied from the outside, through a little crack, she could see everything. The main square down the road, the entrance to the inn, it was a perfect advantage. Only one thing bothered her. Her spell of suggestion would not last much longer. As the minutes passed she began to fret and then worry, but then she saw five dark shapes advancing through the starkly monochromatic tableau of the city. All around the snow came down so that she saw everything through a gauze of white. Patiently she waited. It took a long time before she could make out any details through the flurries. But when they drew up to the inn's main entrance, she could see it, a long shape wrapped in cloth. It could only be one thing, the sword of the paladin Aylward. She wondered what Nightmother intended to do with it, probably sink it to the bottom of a swamp, never to be seen again. She would find out soon enough, because now was the time to execute the last stage of her plan, and she was ready. Romola patted across the room and put her ear to the door, Before long, she could hear the creak of boots on the staircase, and then the sound of keys in locks and opening doors. Someone entered the cockerel room down the hall, then the room across from her own that belonged to the man named Bazu. Strange, she had expected to hear the door to the cat room, too. Had she heard it? She didn't think so. Perhaps two of them had stayed downstairs to speak with the owner. Well, no matter. The plan did not need to change for that. She could live through the back door. Or, if she wanted to have a little fun, she could walk right by them, wearing the face of that freckled farm woman. It was amusing to think on it, but there was no time to waste. She needed to act now. Every minute she let pass risked the expiration of her spell. She touched her thumb to one temple, and her index finger to the other, then drew her hand straight down. As her palm passed across her face, Romella once again took on the features of Catsbane. From his short brown and ginger beard to his wavy hair cut in the page boy style. His own mother would have been fooled by the glamour. Opening the door, she stepped into the hall and lightly tapped on the opposite one. It was the same door with the painted sheep she had tapped on the night before. After a moment, it opened. Chapter 39 Part 3 Day 116 Around Noon Party Status Yellowfly 30 of 30 hit points. Shawnee, 19 of 19. Jace, 26 of 26. Catsbane, 12 of 12. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile, Read Languages, and Mirror Image. Catsbane opened the door and came face to face with... ...himself. Despite what Bazu had told them on the way back from the church, and even though he was no stranger to magic, he simply could not believe his eyes. The novice cleric had mostly avoided him all that morning on the way to the Church of Sedol, and while they were inside. The only times Bazu had looked his way had been in quick, furtive glances. Gatsbane had started to feel quite self-conscious over it, but then, on the way back to the Inn of the Turning Bull... Bazu had suddenly blurted out, Catsbane, you did visit me last night, did you not? I'm sure it was no dream, and yet uh, nothing makes sense. The question managed to stop the entire group in its tracks. Catsbane had, of course, denied any such visit, and had been well and truly perturbed by the question. Yellowfly managed to get Bazu to explain, calming him down and telling him to start at the beginning. None of them could make any sense of the story until Bazu reported the other Catsbane's plan, You...
1: I mean, he told me to wait in my room upon our return. Then he would tap three times on my door to let me know it was him. Together, we would leave through the back door of the inn and escape. He said he knew a good place where we could hide nearby.
0: You'd be dead by this evening if you'd gone with this... this imposter, said Yellowfly, gravely. I... Know not what to make of any of it, said the cleric helplessly. Nor do I, replied Yellowfly, but I do know what to do. After that, and with no apology, Yellowfly quizzed Catsbane for several minutes, finally asking him to recite his oath to the Church Guild.
1: I shall no longer be judged by other men. I shall instead judge myself. I further pledge to uphold the secrecy of the church, even at the cost of my own life. Very well? Are you quite
0: satisfied? Yellowfly could not ask for better than that, and after a few minutes, he was satisfied that Catsbane was who he claimed to be. As they completed their walk back to the inn, Yellowfly shared his plan. Jace was to go into his room and wait for his signal. Fly would get Dawn clear of the inn. If there was going to be trouble, he wanted her far from it. As for Shanae, she had a special part to play. He and the real Catsbane would go up with Bazoo and go with him into his room. If there really were two Catsbanes, this was the only way to know for sure. And so Yellowfly and Bazu were standing right behind Catzbane when he opened the door. And there, on the other side of the threshold, was the doppelganger. When the two men locked eyes, reality seemed to flicker for an instant. And then it shattered completely. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum world building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on Drive-Thru RPG. Finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My sincere thanks to everyone for their support of the show. Right now, I'd like to share another one of your kind reviews. This one is on Apple Podcasts and was posted by the War Master Horus. The War Master Horus writes, "I've been playing D and D since 1988, and I wish my campaigns were this good. From such a simple premise, such a rich story has emerged with characters that you care about. I'm up to episode 55. Don't spoil it for me if anyone dies before the current arc does. Really enjoyed seeing how the world creation process has evolved. If you're looking for a new cameo, I'd recommend Ben from Questing Beast or the Dungeon Minister." Thank you so much, The War Master Horus. I think I had my first games in 1984, so we might be of about the same vintage. My games back then were not as rich as Tale of the Manticore, but they did have something I've been chasing ever since and can't get back. I try, but the wonder and magic of youth is a river you cannot step in twice. Still, making Tale of the Manticore has brought me about as close as is possible. Now, as for your voice talent recommendation, I have had the Dungeon Minister on the show in Season 2. I am definitely a fan. I haven't asked Ben yet. I assume he'll be too busy with Knave too. But, hey, Ben, if you're listening, get in touch. I'd love to have you on the show. Speaking of voice acting, allow me to heap praise on this episode's excellent talent. Kyle is back, playing Catsbane. Playing Novice Bazu, it's Andrew Fling from the wonderful team over at TumbleDye Games. And, back in the role of Nudge Pickens, is Danilo, from the Thinking Critically Discussion Podcast. Check out Danilo at thinkingcritically.co.uk, or at thinkcritdnd on Twitter. If listeners would like to get in touch with me, I'm at manticore Tale on Twitter, or tale of the manticore podcast on Instagram, and there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. It's the story where chaos rolls.
1: Dungeon Dads is a podcast of four dads,
0: John, Tim,
1: Sam, and me, Tom, playing an epic game of D&D, but it's really a story of three mismatched heroes, Jonas Silverwind, a highborn wizard, I am going to cast mage Abel Rock
0: Rockbrother, a wayward cleric, Tempus,
1: will you please in your infinite wisdom, help me to kill these men, and Phil Nier Omajira, a warlock who's made a pact with a higher power. I owe it my life. Guess you had to be there. Come for the epic adventure. This army of barbarians in fur and leather—they're rushing the war wagon. Stay for the dad jokes. So uh, <laughs> here's the whole, fellas. So quoth the queen. And eighties references. People are people. So why should it be that you two should get along so awfully? Find us at dungeondads.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, not bad. Uh, Can we do one more take where you pretend like you actually like the show? Uh, (laughs) Yeah.